If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. John 16, and we'll read this morning verses 5 through 15. Our plan is to finish John 16 next week, God willing, then we'll have a short Advent series. But this morning we're in John 16, verses 5 through 15. Please follow along as I read. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. I want to ask us to pray once again together that God would bless the exposition of His Word. Uh, I also want us to pray, some of you may know uh, that, well, many of you would know that this building that we uh, inhabit was given to us as a gift from Northwest Baptist Church, just a remarkable blessing from God. Uh, Northwest has purpose to continue to meet and to worship God, and they gather on Sunday mornings actually just down the hall in a room they fitted up called the chapel, and uh, today is actually their last Sunday meeting together. And so, um, you might have noticed the back of the parking lot was quite full this morning. Previous members of the church are gathering for this final service that they'll have together before formally dissolving. And so, I want to pray for them as they worship this morning and thank God once again for allowing us to be connected to them uh, in, this, in this wonderful way. So, let's pray together. Our Father... When we planted Emmanuel Church a couple of years ago, when you saw fit to make us one of Christ's true churches, though we had thoughts at that time of one day being able to have a building to call our own, it was in nobody's mind that in such a short amount of time, you would in such a striking and wonderful way give us the gift of this facility and this property. And yet you worked providentially to bring about a relationship with Northwest Baptist Church that has been to us so sweet, so wonderful. We thank you for them, for their legacy of faithfulness, for all of your people over the decades and the generations who have invested in the life of that church. We thank you for every soul saved. We thank you for every cup of cold water given in Jesus' name. We thank you for every true sermon and every class. Thank you for how you have worked through Northwest Baptist Church. We especially thank you that in so many places throughas this city, Northwest Baptist has had a reputation for good works, 
We pray that that legacy would endure and that we would be inspired and helped and instructed by that legacy to carry on good works of our own in this meeting place. We pray, Father, now as they have purposed that the time has come in your providence that they disband as a church and go to various other congregations to continue to worship and serve you. We pray that on this day you would meet with them in a most wonderful way, Uh, that as they gather even now to sing to you and to pray to you, uh, to share fellowship with one another, to sit under the preaching of your word, may they have their minds and hearts drawn away from any sadness uh, to the greatness of God, the greatness of the gospel, and the greatness of your purposes for us in Christ Jesus. May you, in a remarkable and wonderful way, uh, reveal yourself to the saints of Northwest Baptist Church this morning. Enable us to encourage them and to be a blessing to them. We pray that numbers of them would be able to witness over the coming years um, us carrying on a faithful ministry in this place that would cause them to be proud, that would cause them to bless God for His goodness. So please, Father, encourage them this morning. And now encourage us. The need of this hour is that you would come by your Spirit and that you would speak to us through your Word. We're a needy people. We need the Bible. We need the breathed out, inspired words of God to speak to us and to shape us and to mold us that we might better love you and worship you and serve you and live according to your will. So help us this morning as we consider your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in a series of sermons in John's Gospel the last several weeks, even the last few months this fall. We've been in the upper room, uh, beginning in John 13. Uh, The upper room discourse uh, is in the final few days of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus is gathered with His faithful disciples. Uh, He's no longer out among the crowds and among various ones who didn't believe or embrace Him. Judas has left the room at this point. And here is Jesus with the 11 uh, men who had come to embrace Him and to believe on Him and to follow Him. And and we have said in in, in previous messages that one of the things Jesus is doing for His disciples in this uh, upper room is preparing them for His imminent departure. He's preparing them for His death and for eventually His resurrection and His ascension to the right hand of the Father. And and the disciples find themselves, uh, as a result of, of, of this a uh, few hours with the Master, uh, they're in a situation now where they're coping without the physical absence of the Lord Jesus. Uh, they are now entering into a new age, a new era, in which Jesus will be away from them physically. And Jesus' words, I think we should understand, to be in some ways preparatory for that coming era in which Jesus will be with His Father and the Holy Spirit will be in and among uh, His people. It's interesting to me, we've not spent a lot of time talking about this in previous messages, but I hope you've noticed just how gentle and careful and and pastoral Jesus has been with His disciples during this time. He's very sensitive to them, very sensitive to their their burdens, very sensitive to their anxieties and their fears, and, and He's bringing to them again and again words of consolation. It's not lost on Him that this announcement that He's going to return to the Father is, is, is most distressing to these disciples. And we even see that in some of the verses we read. In, in verse 4, Jesus says, I, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, 
because I was with you. So the things I'm saying to you now, I, I didn't say when, when we first were together. Uh, verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Perhaps he could see on their countenances, certainly he could see into their hearts. The things he was saying to them about his imminent departure filled them with sorrow. In verse 12, we read also, Jesus says, I, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You, you see how gentle Jesus is with his disciples. He's, he's little by little unfolding his purposes for them and, and, and what's about to take place. He's careful. He's even parental with them in a way. Some of you may be like this with your children, right? We're like this with our kids. You don't tell your kids everything about the world all at once. You have a sense for, for their development and their maturation, and you tell them what you think they need to know at a given time, and you're eager to not expose them to everything that is so heavy and burdensome in the world, but at the right time to bring that truth to bear on their lives. I just detect something wonderfully parental about Jesus here. He's, he's sensitive to them. He's meeting their needs. He's revealing to them things at the proper time. And he even says, coming to the end of this discourse, I, look, I have other things I need to say to you, but I'm just aware you cannot bear them now. There's just a little lesson for us uh, there in that that I, I just want to say as an aside. Um, Jesus gives us what we need when we need it. And we can see that in the way he's talking to his uh, disciples during this time. He's patient. He's gentle with them. He's uh, careful with them. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He gives us what we need when we need it. He's sensitive to His disciples. Uh, but now in, in these verses here, again, as we're coming to the end of the discourse, chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And so perhaps these are the final words He's going to say directed primarily to His disciples. Jesus says a very striking thing uh, in verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, perhaps of all the things Jesus said, this might have been most shocking or surprising to the disciples. And they surely did not believe or embrace this when Jesus first said it. But Jesus has told them he's going away. He recognizes sorrows filled your heart over this. But look, I'm telling you, it's actually to your advantage. It's to your benefit that I go, because if I go, well, then I'll send the helper to you. If I don't go, I won't send him to you. But if I go to the place of power and authority that my Father has prepared for me, I will send forth the Holy Spirit. And that is very much, my brothers, to your advantage. Do you believe that yourself? We are very much in the same position as these, as these disciples, followers of the Lord Jesus, coping with the physical absence of our Savior in the age in which the Spirit indwells God's people and works in power. Do you believe that statement, that it's actually better to have De Prima and the Holy Spirit this morning, or Ben Allen up here preaching, or Lai Chao, or someone else, and the Holy Spirit present within us and through His Word? Is that actually better than having the Lord Jesus present with us? I'm sure we would all say it'd be best if we could have both. But Jesus' point here is that it is to the advantage of these disciples for their faith and for their mission that he leave in, in such a way, and through the cross and through the grave, that he leave them and that he send the helper to them. Well, I want to consider this morning what we learn about the Holy Spirit's ministry. I mean, I mean clearly, he's going to do something extraordinary 
so extraordinary that it's regarded as superior to having Jesus physically present with his disciples. Well, what is it that the Holy Spirit comes to do? I want to ask that question to verses 5 to 15 of John chapter 16. Uh, We're not going to consider everything exhaustively that the Holy Spirit does in his ministry. We're asking a specific question. What do these verses contribute to our understanding of the Holy Spirit's work and ministry? And there are three things in particular I think we see here about the purpose, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Number one, He convicts the world. Number two, He guides Christ's people in the truth. And number three, He glorifies Christ. Number one, He convicts the world. Number two, He guides Christ's people in the truth. And number three, He glorifies Christ. Consider with me that first heading. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world. Uh, Read with me again, if you would, verses 8 through 11. Uh, And when He comes, speaking of the Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, these verses, verses 8 through 11, are notoriously hard to translate from Greek to English, and they are notoriously hard to interpret. And some of those interpretive issues are bound up in the translation difficulties, okay? It's difficult for at least a few reasons to know how to interpret these verses. Uh, One of the difficulties stems from the the main verb in this passage. The Greek, it's elenko. In English, it's normally translated convict, like it is in, in, in most translations of this passage. It could also be translated expose or convince or prove or something like that. But it's not an easy word to translate. It has a wide range of, of potential meetings. I think, I think convict is best, and I'll, I'll explain why in a little bit. Uh, but it's a difficult verb to translate. A second challenge is that this is the only time in John's gospel uh, that he makes reference to the word righteousness. It's the only time he, he brings up that word. The idea has been present in other passages, but it's the only time in John's gospel when he uses the word righteousness. And, and, and if you're a good Bible person, you study the Scriptures, you might know this, that when you come upon a word, you don't know what it means, one of the first things you should do is see how that writer has used that word in other places. We can't do that with that word uh, because John hasn't, hasn't used that word anywhere else. A third difficulty is that those words, he will convict the world of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. They're not qualified in any way. They're just sort of baldly stated. We're not told precisely what's meant by sin, righteousness, and judgment. You might think of righteousness, for example. Is that a reference to Christ's righteousness, as some have imagined? Uh, uh, righteousness in terms of God's moral demands of people. The righteousness of God is an attribute of God's person or something like that. Or you take a word like judgment. Is it talking about the great assize at the end of all things and will appear before the judgment seat of God? Or is it talking about how people judge particular issues in their lives or something like that? The words are just stated, and they're not qualified, and these all contribute to some of the difficulty in interpreting uh, this passage. But I really want to move away from what's obscure to what I hope actually is very clear in the passage, and if at any point I think what I'm saying is tentative, I'll acknowledge that. I I think we can understand the basic meaning of Jesus' words here if we ask the text, these verses 8 through 11, a a few specific questions. Uh, First of all, the Spirit's going to convict uh, whom? Who will the Spirit convict? Well, very plainly, the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world. 
He's going to convict the world. I don't think that, that should be thought to be like Christ's people, like Christian people, but, but rather these disciples are soon going to go into the world, they're going to preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world, the created order in active rebellion against God, the world full of rebels who have uh, not obeyed God's law and who have sinned against Him. He's going to convict the world, the created order, and active rebellion against God, people outside of Christ. Now, of what will He convict the world. Well, very plainly, the passage says he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, how should we understand those words? In what sense does the Holy Spirit convict the world of sin? In what sense does he convict the world of righteousness and judgment, etc.? And this is where some of my conclusions are most tentative, okay? But, but here's what I think is the basic meaning of these words here. First of all, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. I think the meaning is, is very plain, actually. Uh, for this first one, uh, particularly that the world is in sin, uh, that, that the world is full of sinners, rebels against God, people who have a sin nature, who are dead in their sin. When the Spirit comes in power, filling His people and, and fueling the mission of the church, He's going to convict the world that they're sinners in need of God's grace, that they're sinners who have violated God's law, that they're rebels against God and those who have not obeyed God's commandments. And and Jesus says, verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, which I think means that the, the cardinal sin, the big issue that he's going to convict them of is their sin with respect to how they view Jesus. It's not so much that uh, any one particular ethical principle is in mind, they're going to convict the world of lying or adultery or bitterness or something like that, but the issue is you haven't embraced God's Son. You haven't bowed the knee to Jesus. And the Spirit will come and He will convict the world of this. Then you have the reference to righteousness. When He comes, He'll convict the world of righteousness. Personally, I think this is just the reverse side of sin. Uh, so, so I don't think we should read into this passage what's talked about in other places, say Matthew's Gospel or, or in the Epistle to the Romans, Christ's imputed righteousness or the righteousness of God. I think it's basically saying the Holy Spirit's going to come He's going to convict people in the world that they're sinners, that they violated God's law, and that they're not righteous before God, that they don't possess any righteousness of their own. It's just the reverse side of sin, uh, that people in the world are breakers of God's law. More than that, they have no positive righteousness that they can claim. And the Holy Spirit, when He comes, Jesus is saying, will convict the world of this. Uh, you don't bring any righteousness to God. And subsequently, and this leads to the third point, you will stand in judgment. He will convict the world concerning sin, that they're sinners, uh, concerning righteousness, that they don't have it, and then thirdly, concerning judgment. The Spirit, when He comes, will impress on people the awareness that they will one day stand in judgment. They might try to suppress that awareness, but the Spirit is bringing to people's minds this reality, I will be judged. I will one day answer to God for the deeds done in the body, for my thoughts, for my words. I'm answerable at the last day to Almighty God. And it's this that the Spirit is going to impress upon the minds and hearts of men and women in the world. He's going to, to impress upon them that they are sinners, they're rebels, they violated the law of God. He's going to impress upon them that they are not in right standing with God. They lack the righteousness necessary to live in right relationship with God, and that this all places them under the judgment of God. This is what the Spirit will come to do. 
But now a further question we might ask. What will this conviction do? What will it accomplish? Uh, Why is the Spirit doing this? Well, I think what's happening is that the Spirit will come. He'll convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, and it's going to force a divide. It's going to force a distinction. It's very much like uh, what Jesus says in John 3. Light comes into the world. Some people recoil from that light. Some people are drawn into it. I think that's what's going to happen with this work of conviction. The Holy Spirit comes. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and some people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They resist that conviction, and some are convicted in such a way that they turn from their sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I think what Jesus is saying is really meant to be positive. He says, it's to your advantage. It's it's good that I go, because if I go, I'll send the Spirit. What he's going to do is he's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And yes, that will vindicate the justice of God, but more than that, it actually will draw some people to cry out, what must I do to be saved? They'll become aware, I'm a sinner against the holy God. I lack no, I I, I have no positive righteousness of my own, and I will stand in judgment before God. I need a Savior. Now, Now think why that would be good news to these disciples. If they've traveled with Jesus as they have for a number of months and years now, they're not seeing lots of people repent of their sins and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And they know very soon, or they will know very soon, that Christ is going to arm them, equip them with the gospel message to go into all the world and to preach this message. Well, what hope would they have that anyone's going to respond to that message, fall under conviction, actually believe that they're sinners answerable to God and Cling to Jesus Christ as the solution for sin. But see, Jesus is saying, I have good news. The Spirit's going to do this work of conviction in the hearts of people. I'm going to send my Spirit, and the Spirit of God will be working in an unseen way, in a supernatural way, to convict people of their sin, to, to show them, to reveal to them that they're not in right standing with God and that they will be judged, and many of them will come to believe the gospel and embrace Christ. And in the history of the church, this is evidently what happens. This was fulfilled in the lives of these apostles. The Spirit comes at Pentecost, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches. What happens? Men and women fall under conviction. They become aware that they're sinners against God and that they're answerable to Him. And what do they cry out? What must I do to be saved? They respond to that work of conviction that the Holy Spirit has brought upon them. This work of conviction is meant to draw men and women into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. So what is the Holy Spirit's function? What is He doing in the world? One of the things He is doing is He's convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment so that some will turn from their sin and embrace Christ. You appreciate I'm going beyond the passage to draw out that last bit. People respond to conviction. Some will respond to this conviction by embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, I think that's the good news in this passage. Now, I just want to sort of lay out one small application for us. It's actually quite significant application for us this morning. The Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, through the evangelization of lost people, Uh, through the revelation of the gospel to various people groups throughout the world, people maybe in your own lives who you interact with. His work of conviction 
is not principally to help people appreciate that if they would just believe the gospel, join the church, that they'll have a much happier life. Uh, The Spirit is not convicting people that if they would just become a Christian, they'd have health, wealth, and prosperity. The convicting work that the Holy Spirit is doing is, is, is so much more grand than that, so much more cosmic than that, so much more powerful than that. He's going to come, He's going to convict the world of these great cosmic issues of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Uh, that men and women born in sin stand before the righteous judgment of God, and that they're answerable to their Creator God. And the Spirit, in a supernatural and unseen way, is going to impress this upon the hearts and minds of men and women. And the, the prayer, the hope is, in our preaching and in our evangelism, that will have the effect of causing them to turn from their sin to embrace God's provision of salvation in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would come to a point of crisis like those men and women in Acts 2, where they say, what must I do to be saved? Look, we are not interested in convincing anybody that your life is just going to be fixed and all your problems are going to be solved if you would just sign your name on the dotted line and join the church. That's not the good news. And, and, And no one here is trying to convict you of that. But the work that the Spirit comes to do is to convict people of these great matters of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's something that can't be coaxed, it can't be manufactured. I'm not talking about setting the lights just right and creating an emotional environment in which people will feel induced to come down to the front or something like that. I'm talking about God the Holy Spirit coming to a person in an unseen way and impressing upon them these truths that you are a sinner against a holy God, that, that you, you bring nothing to the table in terms of your own positive righteousness, and therefore there is a chasm between you and God, and you will stand in judgment. In the context of that conviction, the gospel message comes with all sweetness and light, that God has made a provision in His Son, the Lord Jesus, by whom you can be saved from your sins. And you can be in right relationship with God and you can inherit paradise forever. Previous generations of the church had a greater appreciation for this sort of conviction. We don't use this language very much. But we ought to pray in the preaching of the word. We ought to pray in our evangelism. We ought to pray for our own children, our own friends and family who are outside of Christ. Lord, bring them under conviction. We want you to do so much more than just persuade them that we're a bunch of happy people. Persuade them that they're in sin, that that they're not right with God, and that they're answerable to Him. And then, Lord, in the context of that conviction, bring the good news of the gospel, whereby they might be saved. That's why, I'll just mention, there was a, a child who asked me this question, actually, about why we pray so much. Our prayers on Sunday mornings revolves so much around the Holy Spirit and asking the Holy Spirit to be here and to do things and all of that. Well, well, this is one of the reasons, kids, that one of the things we're asking God to do in the context of our meetings is that the Holy Spirit would come and work in such a way to bring about conviction, to, to, to convince sinners that they need the grace of God in order to be saved. It's very much, I think, what Jesus is talking about here in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, we need to move on from there. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit's ministry is that He convicts the world. Number two, He guides Christ's people in the truth. He guides Christ's people 
in the truth. Verse 12 through 15, please follow along as I read. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Before thinking about the way in which these words apply to us, I want us to think about those original disciples for a few moments, then we'll go on to its applications for us. Uh, The promise is that the Holy Spirit's going to come, and He's going to guide these disciples in the truth. By the way, the word that is sometimes translated into the truth, just as easily be translated in the truth, and I think that's that's more the idea. Uh, He will guide His people in the truth. Well, this evidently happened for these early disciples and for uh, the early church. Just think of all the things, if you read the gospel accounts, all the things that were just fuzzy and unclear to the disciples, all the cobwebs that they had, everything that seemed obscure and unclear, and how after the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit, just the striking clarity they have, the definition, what was obscure is now manifest. And some of the apostles write about this, that there was a mystery that's now been revealed. They come to see things more clearly. Even in the Gospels themselves, we see this. We'll see this at Jesus' resurrection. In John chapter 20, when they see the empty tomb, it says that they they as yet did not understand uh, uh, that Christ was going to rise again, and and it it all clicked for them. At the end of Luke's Gospel, in Luke 24, Uh, Jesus comes to His disciples and He opens their mind to understand the Scriptures. This is one of the things the Spirit does, that He comes to the Lord's people and He guides them in the truth. He illuminates the truth for them, helps them to understand the ways in which it connects, helps them to see the inner significance of the truth and its relevance for their lives. This is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and He did that for these early disciples. And what's more, he inspired some of them to record this illumined insight. He inspired them to record these things in various, what are now, books of the Bible. We have the New Testament, brothers and sisters, very much in fulfillment of this promise in John 16. The Holy Spirit's going to come to guide the disciples in the truth, and some of them recorded the guidance, the teaching, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and we have it now. Had these disciples written their understanding of the truth at this time in this upper room, you wouldn't want to read those books. But after the resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, there's this clarity. The Holy Spirit has illuminated the hearts and minds of His people and guided them into the truth. But now think about ourselves. What relevance do these words from Jesus have for us? Well, His ministry for us is is very much the same. The Holy Spirit is still in the business of guiding God's people in the truth. The Holy Spirit is said to be the Spirit of truth. It says that in three places in the upper room. It says that here in our text. When the Spirit of truth comes. What is the Holy Spirit doing in our hearts and in our lives? He's helping us understand the truth of God's Word. The truth as it is in Jesus. He is the Spirit of truth. Not the Spirit of of vague impressions. Not the Spirit of, of... 
of charismatic outbursts, not the, the spirit of ambiguous notions. Some people speak about the spirit as though uh, he's sort of the very mysterious one who comes and, and makes you feel certain feelings and makes you very spontaneous and makes you say things you don't know where it comes from. And that's not at all how the spirit is revealed in God's word. He's the spirit of truth. And, and he is most at work in our lives when we are making most of the truth, best understanding the truth. And, and so the posture of one who, who wishes to know the spirit's presence in their lives it's not like, like this, like your arms are wide open, you're standing in a field, you're looking up to heaven, and you're thinking, okay, Holy Spirit, do I take this job or this job? I'm trying to sense the feelings, looking upward and inward. Holy Spirit, tell me what you want me to do. That's not the idea at all. The posture of one who wants to experience the Holy Spirit's presence in their lives is with an open Bible and a bowed head. Lord, illumine the truth of your word. Help me to understand the scriptures. Uh, do what you did for those early disciples. Show me the connections. Help me to understand the Bible's relevance for my life. Help me to understand the truth as it is in Jesus. The Holy Spirit's ministry is a truth ministry. He comes to lead us and to guide us into the truth. He is our teacher. We should have this awareness that God the Holy Spirit is our ally in the pursuit of knowing and living out the truth. He comes to guide us and to help us. He comes to be our teacher. And His work is not to bring about new revelations, things outside of the Bible, but rather to illumine the revelation that we have. You see that in the passage. He comes to take what is Christ's and declare it to us. We should not think in terms of the Holy Spirit giving us visions and telling us new things and revealing truth we don't have already. Rather, we go to the truth that Christ has given to us in His Word. We expect the Holy Spirit will open up our minds to understand the truth, that He will guide us and lead us in the truth. And again, children, I'll just say, this is another reason why our prayers on Sunday morning so much revolve around what the Holy Spirit is doing. As we come into the worship of God, and as we sit under the preaching of His Word, one of the things we expect from the Spirit is that He'll be our teacher, that He'll guide us in the truth, that perhaps through the Spirit-anointed preaching of God's Word, we'll come to understand the truth more deeply. We'll come to understand the Bible in a fuller and richer way. And so we're asking, Holy Spirit, come, and as Your Word is opened up, do that work that You promised to do, that Christ told us You would do. Guide us in the truth. Help us to understand the Scriptures. Do for us what you did for those disciples so many years ago. Jesus says this is part of the Spirit's work, that He will guide His people in the truth. And then thirdly and finally, He glorifies Christ. He convicts the world. He guides Christ's people in the truth. And number three, He glorifies Christ. Now this idea of the Spirit glorifying Christ is very much connected to that second point, but I've separated it out because there's something distinct I want us to see here. Verse 14, Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify me. We said a few weeks ago when we were looking at John 14, 
Now, the Holy Spirit's ministry can be understood as functioning like a spotlight. So it's a spotlight ministry. You know what spotlights do? They're lights that are designed by their very function to direct away from themselves to something else. Someone's name up in lights or some sort of sign or something like that. The spotlights are illuminating, drawing attention to, drawing your gaze from the light up to whatever is being spotlighted. That's a good analogy for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One of the things the Holy Spirit does is he, He's directing our gaze to the Lord Jesus, and He is seeking to generate in God's people the, the greatest affections, the highest thoughts of worship toward Jesus. He wants glory to go to Jesus, and He wants to direct our hearts, our minds, our eyes to see Jesus, to behold Him, and to glorify Him. So the Holy Spirit is most effective, brothers and sisters, in our lives when we are making most of Jesus, when we are seeing Jesus most clearly, when we're loving Jesus most affectionately, when we are worshiping Jesus most adoringly, when we are glorifying Christ. This is why the Holy Spirit comes. He comes to glorify the Son of God. He comes to exalt Jesus to magnify our sense of His glory and His perfection. So I think it's in every way appropriate. We use this language sometimes of being Christ-centered. You ever wonder where that comes from? We want our worship to be Christ-centered. We want our preaching to be Christ-centered. We want our lives to be Christ-centered. You can't make too much of Jesus. One of the reasons we use that language, though, is not only because the gospel message centers upon Jesus and the redemptive arc of history centers on Jesus and the worship of heaven centers on Jesus. Part of the reason we speak of being Christ-centered is because part of the function of the other two members of the Trinity are to glorify and exalt Jesus. So, So the first person of the Trinity, the Father, Jesus says, glorifies the Son. Jesus says that He glorifies me. What about the Spirit? Well, when the Spirit comes, what's He going to do? He's going to glorify Christ. He's going to direct the attention of God's people to Christ, the second person of the Trinity. You meet Christians now and again who who are very enthusiastic about the Holy Spirit. All Christians should be enthusiastic about the Holy Spirit. But to be some Christians, he's all they want to talk about. I'm a Holy Spirit Christian. I'm all about the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about the Holy Spirit. I'm all about the Holy Spirit. Okay, here's how I know such a person is not all about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit would never lead a person to say something like that. The Holy Spirit wants you to direct your eyes and your heart to Christ. Holy Spirit is, is saying it's not all about me. You need to know about the Holy Spirit. The Bible reveals the Holy Spirit, but He wants you to glorify Christ. He wants you to be centered in a special way on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He comes to glorify Christ, to magnify Christ. And in that sense, this is a very important point for Christian theology. There is a reason why Christians focus their attention in a special way on the second person of the Trinity. Because God the Father, the first person, God, the Holy Spirit, the third person, are as part of their function directing people to worship the Son. Now, that's not to say 
we shouldn't have large thoughts about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It's not to say we shouldn't have sermons on God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But the point is this, you cannot think long about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit without thinking about God the Son, without thinking about the Son that the Father glorifies. The the Father exalts the Son and gives Him authority and power. If you're thinking about the Spirit, you won't think about Him long before thinking about His work of magnifying the Son and glorifying the Son and directing our attention to the Son. It really is striking, not just in John's Gospel, but in the other Gospel accounts in the New Testament, really the whole Bible. It really is striking how much Jesus expects to be at the center of things. John 5 What does he say to the Pharisees? You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that testify to me. He's the Word who was in the beginning with God, who was God. He created all things by the Word of His power. He comes into the world as light. People are to come into that light and embrace Him as light that they may not remain in darkness. Jesus expects to be at the center of everything. And when the Holy Spirit comes, well, He's going to glorify me. He's going to make much of me. The Father, why? And the Father are one. He set His seal upon the Son. Jesus is at the center of everything in the Bible. He's at the center of everything in John's Gospel. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is only to confirm that. Jesus is at the center of everything. Well, I say that to say... You have to appreciate the Christian message is is nothing less than that. Christ is the focus of the Christian message. The person of Jesus Christ is the focus of the Bible. The person of Jesus Christ is the focus of the gospel. The person of Jesus Christ is the focus of human history. The, The gospel message is not meant to persuade groups of people to embrace a certain code of ethics. That if you just live right, that's what this is all about, and that'll lead to human flourishing or something like that. The the purpose of the Bible and of the gospel is not to get people just to cognitively sign their name to the proper truth claims or something like that. That's, That's not the message of the Bible and of the gospel. The message of Christianity is Christ Himself. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the God man. It's all about what God has done in His Son, the Lord Jesus, for sinners. If you're going to embrace Christianity, if you're going to embrace the Bible, if you're going to embrace the gospel message, you are embracing the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that the Holy Spirit wants you to see about Jesus? That He is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have everlasting life. He comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And He comes to spotlight this one, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Redeemer, the only Savior for sinners. So I say that to you this morning. The reason we are gathered, the reason we worship God, the reason we come to this place to meet together, the reason we give so much attention to the Bible because we have found in the Scriptures hope for everlasting life. God has condescended to show us our sins, 
our lack of righteousness, that we will one day stand before the judgment seat of God. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, He has shined a spotlight on the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's provision for salvation for a lost and dying world. And I say to you, my friend, this is our message, that if you are a sinner, dead in sin, lost in sin, you know you violated God's law, you know that you are answerable to Him. The message is this, that if you embrace His provision in His Son, if you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, He will be a Savior for you. I assure you there is nothing in your background to disqualify you from being a recipient of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. He can save you from the greatest of sins. He can save you from a life that's been wasted. He can save you from everything that has been destructive in your life. And He can bear you safely to God. He'll be a Savior for your sins. This is what the Holy Spirit comes to do. To convict you of the truth of what I am saying this morning. To spotlight Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, all of us are aware that we're sinners. We don't have to think long and hard before sins that we've committed come to our minds. All of us have violated your law. All of us have failed to live righteously before you. And we are aware, all of us, in our heart of hearts, that we will one day answer to you. Father, what a mercy that you would reveal to us the truths of this passage in time, that we might turn from our sin, that we might embrace your provision of salvation, that we might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be a Savior for us. We pray, Father, that every heart here this morning would behold Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that every heart here would see Him for who He is, as a Savior for sinners, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as the light of the world, the one who comes so that we might not remain in darkness but might have the light of life. Help us, each one, to see Jesus for who He is, to embrace Him, to receive Him, to love Him, to worship Him. Holy Spirit, we know this is Your great work to glorify Christ. So come and help us to make much of Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.